0: Welcome to Any Honey and the Newt.
1: Welcome to another episode of Any Honey and the Newts. We uh, have been talking about subjectivity this season. We talked about perspective and perception. And then we took a little detour through language and normativity. Hopefully you've bored through those four episodes that we absolutely love talking about. Uh, but now we want to get into things that probably are going to be more down the avenue of our listeners. And today we want to talk about the idea of value, the concept of value.
0: I can't believe you just said that the language and normativity was a detour. <laughs>
1: for us it's the main stop but i have a feeling most people that are jumping on this podcast we tricked them we got them to stop by our our favorite little landing spot
0: yeah our soapbox if you will (laughs) well your soapbox i'm like the uh the person who comes to listen uh religiously (laughs) oh you don't get off that easy (laughs) 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 who makes me talk about it all the time
1: (laughs) Uh, no, that's that's great. I do love that stuff. And I think it's very closely tied to the things that people, you know, are more mainstream interested in. But let's start with uh, the trade season is coming upon us. We've already had a trade in the NBA, and uh, we're getting ready for all these teams that are out of the playoffs trying to figure out how they can improve their their rosters. So my question for you today is, one, do you have any, like, top trades that you would like to see in the nba and two how do we determine that a trade is a good or a fair trade Ooh, that's a good question so and are those the same thing
0: oh i definitely think that they're not the same thing a good trade and a fair trade are not the same thing um and we'll talk about that in a second but just going back to your first question um there's been a lot of talk about ben simmons because of his uh, playoff performance or lack of performance, depending on the situation. And it's been evident for the past couple of years that um, essentially in certain situations he has what we would call the yips, right? But only, only in certain contexts, right? Like it started with he just would refuse to shoot threes. Um, and then now in the playoffs, he like refused to dunk the ball. Because he was, like, the theory is that he was afraid to get fouled and go to the free throw line in that process. I don't know how true or not true that is. Um, But the whole thing there is, like, because Philadelphia didn't perform up to expectations, are they going to train, trade, sorry, not train. They think he's untrainable. Um, (laughs) Are they going to trade their franchise player for uh, another type of point guard? And uh, so I think ultimately they won't. I think it just won't work out. But um, there's all sorts of in- there's all sorts of questions around how valuable he is as a trade piece, uh, which is actually interesting because it's in stark contrast to the question of how valuable is he as a player on the Sixers. Hmm. Um, so yeah. Did you have any uh anything to add to that Ben Simmons question, like, do you have a team that you think would make a good fit for him?
1: I I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it because I do feel bad that what essentially seems to be happening is that a superstar or a potential superstar has had an, a weakness exposed. And because of the public scrutiny and the way that teams are attacking it, yeah. it's really getting to him psychologically. And, and that's kind of a, you know, sad, disappointing thing to see because um it's such a a competitive world and and that kind of exposed weakness can impact other parts like he could just say well i'm not good at that one thing but i'm going to go through fight through it and and find other ways to adjust or i have to do it anyway even though i'm not good at it so that my team gets the benefit of uh defenses not being able to predict everything i'm going to do um but instead, it seems like it's shutting down even the things that he's good at and and really getting under his skin. So I do kind of feel bad even having these conversations about Ben Simmons because it's obvious that he's not like totally right right now. Right.
0: Uh, I'll add but, one thing to that, which is that um, and I we I think we will get here this season. Right. Is this this learner mindset that I am very much fixated on and kind of like what spurred all these conversations and um, I think that those conversations that we're hearing, they just don't take into account that people do learn over time. And he's something like, mm-hmm. what, 23, 24 years old. So he has, like, plenty of time to figure this stuff out and get – I don't even think figure it out, right? Just make small improvements in the areas that he's deficient in.
1: Right, right. Yeah, and he's still going to be uh, – has been uh, a huge piece of their success to get to this point. It's just always at this level all of a sudden when teams are game planning for him that it that it seems to fall apart. So that being said, it doesn't make sense to send him to a team that all they need is that playoff piece, right? Like there's been some talk about him going to Portland, but what they need is not uh, regular season success. They need that extra, like, weapon – to go along Dame in the playoffs. So that doesn't seem like a good fit. Um, That being said, part of our assessment and part of the difficulty I'm having in, in finding a landing place for a theoretical landing place for Ben Simmons is what would you have to trade to get him a year ago? uh, There was talks about trading him for James Harden, you know, a potential MVP every year. And now that this performance in the, Playoffs has, has kind of been the latest focus, and they're getting ready to go into off season, His trade value seems to have dropped. And so, one, I want to just think about the concept of trade value itself. And secondly, how important perception is to that notion of value.
0: Yeah, that's a really uh, good point. Because, <clears throat> like you mentioned a year ago, it was almost a straight-up one-for-one swap of Harden versus Ben Simmons. And both of them have their deficits, and both of them have their strengths. Um, But it's kind of like right now unthinkable to say like, wow, a year ago we were really considering James Harden for Ben Simmons. And now it's looking like Ben Simmons plus a first-round pick for some fringe superstar on the other
1: team. uh, Like CJ C. McCollum kind of level.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like CJ McCollum kind of level, which now kind of seems absurd, <laughs> especially when you take... <laughs> That past thing into context. And um, the NBA likes to throw around this word market value uh, when discussing, you know, player salaries and player trades. And it's kind of like that. But I also think that it's also not really because somebody essentially does something stupid and makes this kind of crazy trade. And that totally changes the landscape. Which I guess to the point that is like essentially what market value means uh, in an economic stamp sense, right? So like for example, um, when the Clippers traded for or signed Kawhi Leonard uh, two years ago, right? They had to make this like all-in trade of Paul George. And it was like Paul George for like, uh, like five, what was it? Five first round picks or something absurd like that. Something along uh,
1: that. Whereas,
0: like, the season before, he got traded for um, Victor Oladipo and, like, a first-round pick. And so, like, in in one or two seasons, his trade value jumped astronomically. And now we're starting to see that, like, maybe GMs don't value first-round picks as much as they did, you know, two, three seasons ago. When, like, you know, the Sam Hinkies of the world were, like, just accumulating these things because they had so much value it's like you basically can get whatever you want if you throw in a first round pick
1: (laughs) yeah uh inflation stinks for okc because they what how many of these picks do they have now something like 27 first round picks in the next five years
0: i think it's something like 27 total picks but it's like 17 first round picks in the next seven years it's something either way it's an absurd number of first round picks
1: yeah Somebody was joking, like, a few more trades and they'll be able to own the entire draft next year. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Or all the drafts Um, for
0: the next 10 years.
1: (laughs) So uh, I just wanted to uh, use this as a springboard for our topic for today on value. And I think it's interesting. We were just talking about the value of picks, which are potential players. You can't put a pick. You can't put five picks out on your court as your lineup. They're not players. They're not able to, they're not real people. Um, So the value of potential versus like actual players that are in the NBA performing. Right. So there's a a weird kind of assessment going on there. A theoretical kind of value exchange.
0: Yeah. And I definitely want to put a pin in what I'm about to say, uh, because what you're talking about is almost like a confirmation bias. Uh, And so I'll leave the word I'll leave the word bias uh, for a future conversation for sure. But essentially, like um, be like you said, right? it's theoretical. These players don't even exist yet. And even when they do on draft night, right? you're actually picking players who you think are a good fit for your team. You don't know the full extent of their skill set. And even if you just look statistically, even if you have a top three pick, it's not guaranteed that you're even going to get a starter level player. Right, um, like Ben mm-hmm. Simmons, I think is at this point right now is like the last superstar picked in the top three, and now that's a bit extreme. Right, Tatum. Tatum. Uh, he was the same draft though, right? Or was he the draft after?
1: Draft after, so he's more recent. I thought okay. you were saying, yeah.
0: I sorry, I got my dates mixed up. Then now, last season, right, we had Zion Williams come out in the top three. Um, John Morant and, uh, RJ Barrett. Right. And all three look like they're going to be studs. Uh, but they're not in that like superstar tier yet. So let's just hold off on, on any pitchforks coming my way. <laughs> <laughs> but like the whole point is that like, even when you think you have a sure thing, you don't. And, uh, Philadelphia is a perfect example of that because, uh, they got Ben Simmons with the number one pick in one draft the very next year or the year after they got, um, uh, the point guard in Fultz. Orlando. Thank you, Mar- Markel yeah. Um, And then in the years before that, in the top three, they got like New Orleans Noel, and they got uh, Darius Sartre. Embiid. Team a little later, they got Embiid. Um, but they had all these like top five pick potentials. And almost... Okafor. Okafor, thank you. And almost none of them panned out. And so you like made this huge uh, organization-shifting strategy... And, like, sure, now your team is good, but you had to sift through, like, five or six terrible years on the chance that you're going to be good. When you could, like, now we're seeing, like, people are just trading those chips in for, like, essentially sure bets, which I think, like, if we're talking market value, that's the way you go.
1: It it really sounds, Anthony, like you just didn't trust the process. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Um, (laughs) (laughs) but that's it right the whole idea of trust the process was we're going to do some gambling some high stakes gambling we know that it's not going to all pan out but we're going to try and and weigh this so that statistically we'll get at least something that will help rebuild our team and so the whole trust the uh, process theory was this idea of assessing value and risk right so um it leads into things that we've been talking about already we've talked about normativity and language and how that impacts our experience. But I think uh, another really important part of subjectivity is the notion of value. And it's not uh, monolithic. You know, we've been talking about value and trade value. And I think when people talk about the value of things, they tend to go to economics first, right? Like, how much does it cost? What's the price? Do I think it's worth that price? Am I willing to make an exchange, like in bartering? How many of my chickens are worth how many pounds of rice and so on? uh but we have values of other kinds right we might say what's the value of that in how useful is it or is it working uh we might be talking about uh our ethical values right what are the things i think are uh important to do or not to do and then we might have principles and of like taste so i might um have a discerning palate for wine, or I might uh, be an art critic and have certain standards that I'm looking for in paintings or sculpture. Right, so there's a lot of different kinds of values that we can have. Another simple one is is correctness. That is actually a value, right? So whether or not something is true, uh, whether you get an answer correct or not on a test, and the score that you get at the end of the test, those are all evaluations. Those involve values. So it's a pretty big concept.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think what I like most about everything that you just described is all the different ways we see that in our day-to-day lives, right? Uh, and even some stuff that we think, like the true or false within the test, right? I was notorious for this. I used to argue wrong answers into right answers all the time just by explaining a viewpoint that the teacher hadn't considered. And because it wasn't technically wrong it just was outside the bounds of her uh of their grading sheet right in some cases they were like well this is what the what i'm saying the answer is so no you don't get the the points for it and sometimes they say like you're right i hadn't considered that i'm wrong in this case and then they would give you the points right so then it becomes it's not as black and white as we like to make it out to be uh especially when it comes down to um uh, uh some of the ethical lines too
1: It's really interesting that you put it that way, because I think some people would say the answer to a math problem is black or white. Like it's either right or it's wrong. Uh, But other things like whether or not sardines are tasty, right? Might be relative to the person whose taste we're evaluating. Uh, And maybe it's gray. Maybe sometimes I enjoy it in certain contexts and maybe I don't enjoy it in others. Uh, I want to kind of look at what makes values have this kind of complex flexibility because I think it has often been interpreted well if some things aren't objective then maybe no evaluations are objective or because some things are objective like math then there must be an objective truth to all other evaluations even if we disagree about them right so so in both directions people have kind of argued about whether values are objective or subjective
0: I like the uh, the logical leaps the those values have taken too. <laughs> it's like I I got this one little thing I'm gonna go all the way over here to make
1: this conclusion. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, this is a Plato thought that there was like the good, the beautiful, the true, and that they all kind of coalesced into one one high standard, uh, because in some cases like mathematics, it's very clear like a triangle has 180 degrees and if it doesn't hit that mark, it's not a real triangle. It's an approximation. And so he thought there has to be a standard for every kind of judgment. And that means judgment for how good a play is or uh, how beautiful a poem is or how good a relationship is. Uh, And and so it's interesting to think about values as judgment operators.
0: Yeah. What's really fascinating about all that is just, how often we uh, place judgment and in doing so uh, determine an evaluation system even if we don't explicitly do so. Uh, For example, I wasn't really turned on to this until very recently, maybe the past like year or so, that um, I would tend to say that something is good or bad. And I quickly realized that in doing so, that I'm either placing uh, my own value system on something that may not necessarily actually even be good or bad, right? Like, let's say we're talking about our feelings, right? I can't say that your feelings are good or bad because they are within the, um, I will guess I'll say perspective, but that's not quite right. The pers- my own perspective of what good or bad should be. Um, but sometimes, like we talked about last week, right? It's really just about if it's natural, that doesn't mean it's good or bad. It just is. And uh, going a little deeper with that, uh, then I realized that it's sometimes it's not even my own value system. It's just an inherent value system within societal norms that I picked up on. Right. So thinking that a law might be good or bad for the sake of society, but I'm thinking that it's my own perspective when really like hundred thousand other people are also saying the same thing. And I'm just kind of like absorbing that.
1: Yeah, no, it's interesting. I, I want to introduce a little bit of terminology because good and bad can be uh, considered thin terms, thin uh, values because they can kind of slip between different registers. So a good athlete might be someone who performs their sport or their skill excellently. Uh, but a good person might be their ethics or it might be their personality a good uh piece of art might be how beautiful it is right so we good is kind of slipping back and forth it doesn't have its own kind of constitutive meaning whereas there are thick terms like accurate right it meets the standard uh or uh, i'm trying to think of another value um salty right i can i can judge how salty some food is and and it's kind of an objective standard. We we can measure its saltiness, um, and so that's whether or not I attribute saltiness to being a good flavor or not is can, may be separable, right? Well, that's because "good" is a thin term. One person might say it fits within my my standards of good, and others would say no, it doesn't fit my standards of good they can both agree that something is salty so maybe the thicker the term is the more objective it gets because the more clear the criteria becomes
0: so when you're uh, defining thick or thin registers um, does that really just mean like how specific the word is to the context
1: yeah it's it's how clearly does it communicate the criteria by which it, it should be judged
0: so like when you're judging food right you could say it's good um but there's like essentially no uh, external way to measure that by somebody else's standards right your good might be different from my good but if you use the words like well it's got you know it's it's re- extremely salty um it's very juicy and you start to define like the criteria then i have some way of of defining whether it's good or bad within that criteria is that essentially what you're saying yes
1: Yes, good. So so one of the things that a good meal could ha- <laughs> One of the, th- the things that a good meal could have is that it's really nutritious, right? And so somebody might be valuing a-, a nutritious meal and say, "Oh, this is great. This is a good meal. This is exactly what I was looking for." And somebody who's just looking out for a rich, you know, uh, indulgence might be like, "Uh, oh, this isn't What are you talking about? This is okay, I guess." <laughs> right? But that's because they're evaluating based on different criteria so the thick terms kind of help us identify oh okay by that measure then yes it it meets it's a rich dessert i just don't like rich desserts or something like that
0: i think of that scene in the matrix when um neo first tastes like real world food and um the pilot gives him the bowl and he's like it's so good it's got everything the body needs and neo like sort of chokes on it because he's used to matrix food which has like flavor and all that (laughs) but his definition (laughs) was like this is everything you need in a bowl of milk essentially
1: (laughs) right (laughs) yeah and so i think to help us kind of sort through how different values can kind of be slipped in we, we might be talking about the same thing but using different values to evaluate it and then wonder why our evaluations are disagreeing so it might be helpful to just talk briefly about the structure of evaluation and then see if that helps us sort out any confusions. Let's do it. So awesome. So I think a kind of a straightforward, uh, understanding of, I'm going to use the math quiz example. I think a straightforward understanding of an evaluation would be the student is given a, a multiplication problem and they have to provide the answer, right? What is six times eight? And they evaluate the answer. They, they know the, the, objects six and eight and the operator times. and then they need to come conclude to uh, an answer, right? So the, the answer is the judgment. That's the final part of the evaluation. that's the outcome. The contributing factors, the source is the six and the eight. And sort of the operation of times, but but we're going to talk about that as part of the process of getting the judgment, right? So you've got six and eight and some kind of relationship between them. And then you have the criteria, which is, what does it mean to use the operator times? What is this relationship that they have to one another? And when we enforce that relationship, we evaluate that the re- result of that relationship is 48. Okay, This is kind of an abstract way of talking about a times problem, but it's going to be helpful as we go down the line of registers here. So does that make sense? So there's like the source, the criteria, and the outcome.
0: Yeah, uh, just to interject real quick, I kept thinking about like the ability to make sense of that nomenclature. And like you said six times eight and by that we def- we assume it's decimal notation, right? Um, but then I kept mm-hmm. thinking six and eight is the same values in hexadecimal. And they could write their answer as like a combination of letters because that's what 48 is in hexadecimal. And then I was like, Man, that uh, so now my brain is just spinning on that. But I'll let you continue. Right?
1: No, no, that's good. Uh, What that would mean is my assumption that we were working in decimal in a decimal system was part of the criteria I was using to form the judgment. Right? If there was an instruction at the top of the quiz, perform these multiplication problems in hexadecimal. Yeah. So, so uh, the criteria there would change, and your evaluation would be different because you're using different criteria. So that's good. That helps highlight the the difference I want to point out, right? Well, let's say that the student puts down 48 and the uh, teacher who's grading the quiz, their answer key, for whatever reason, it's a typo or something, it says 46, right? So they see the answer 48, they mark it wrong, they give it back to the student. So the first thing is there's an evaluation, right? The teacher's using the source, which is the student's quiz, and the answer key, which is their criteria, And the judgment isn't a a number, it isn't the answer to the math problem, it's right or wrong, correct or incorrect, right? And so they give back the evaluated quiz to the student, and now the student says, so there what we were evaluating was the outcome of the first evaluation. It's now the source, right? And the criteria is now the answer key, and the new judgment is not a math problem, it's a an, an evaluation, and assessment of their accuracy. The student gets it and says, wait a second, eight six times eight is 48. Your answer key is wrong, right? So now what's being used is the source information of the teacher's outcome saying that their answer was wrong, plus the source information that 48 is actually the answer to six times eight to then evaluate the criteria so now the source and outcome have become the criteria for evaluating the criteria, which is now the source. We're now evaluating the ad- adequacy of the answer key, right? So there's the three, three-part structure to evaluation, but any one of the three parts can be what's actually being evaluated. Such a mind twister. <clears throat> <laughs> but I mean, that happens
0: all the time. I mean, even in most people's line of work, uh, there's this, discussion between you and your colleagues right you're like we're going to come up with this uh you don't explicitly say this evaluation system we're going to like measure this thing that's happening over here what are our criteria what are we looking for that sort of thing and then you know you start doing it and you realize that maybe your criteria doesn't match what you got in terms of like what you were looking for you're like oh either we didn't do this right or we missed something, we left something out and you start to reevaluate the evaluation criteria or you reevaluate what your original values were, or you reevaluate the 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 method of acquisition that you were using. So there's like so much stuff happening here. And that's like just on the objective end of evaluation.
1: Right. Well, and and subjective, because I think you <clears throat> pointed out a really big thing is that often we aren't conscious of, or haven't made explicit, which criteria we're using. Sometimes I make judgments and evaluations and don't really know what standards I'm applying. I, I see something and I'm like, oh, I like that, that is good, right, thin, thin term. But I don't know what good means because I don't know what criteria, I'm, am I saying I'm familiar with that, it's comfortable? Am I saying it has some important concept that I think ought to be emulated? Do I think that it is um, visually appealing what what are my criteria maybe it's a mixture of all of these things and because I can't pin down exactly what my evaluation is I use a thin term like good and somebody else uses a thin term like bad and now we have the appearance of a disagreement but we don't even know what criteria we're we're using to make our judgments
0: yeah usually when I begin a class um, I ask participants like essentially what kinds of things they're looking to get out of the class and so i basically mm. write, write this list on the board and many times there's a lot of thin terms but some there's a lot of really thick terms just to use the language that we've established and uh, throughout the class i ask the students to essentially evaluate their experience based on the things that they articulated at the beginning and sometimes we find that some of those terms uh, actually apply really well. And some of them, like you said, they're they're really thin. They, they don't quite get at that. But because they now have a deeper and slightly different experience, we can dive and turn those thin terms into thicker terms, if that makes sense. Thicker registers, I guess.
1: Yeah. And so I want to go back to an example that we've talked about in previous episodes to kind of see if this helps provide any tools for us. And that is the who's the greatest player debate. Right, the the goat the
0: goat yeah that's uh, such an interesting one because um, so the debate really is like LeBron or MJ uh, maybe some people will say Kobe and I think right and now I, that's where we stand
1: I, I always get frustrated that uh, Jabbar and Chamberlain don't get thrown in the mix I feel like if we're going to be legit you need to bring in the big guys that dominated all the stats for years and years and years
0: and still do in many in many cases right isn't kareem yeah. still the number one scorer of all time
1: uh yes i think lebron's really close to passing him though yeah
0: he is really close and then like will you know his 100 points in a game might not ever be broken
1: i i used to think it couldn't be but now that we're seeing scores of 160 <laughs> maybe
0: i mean maybe right the, but the closest that we've had was uh kobe's 82 booker's 70 what like three seasons ago that's when he had 70
1: yeah but there's been multiple 70 point game you're right kobe's is the closest but we've had something like six or seven 70 point games and some of them have been in recent years so i feel like we're edging up
0: oh yeah for sure um i wonder though if there's an asymptote there just because of how we <laughs> play. just because of how we play but okay so yeah,
1: his the Atsungtoad's name is Steve Kerr because he keeps taking Clay Thompson and Steph Curry out of games when they score a lot. <laughs> oh, it's always the coach, right? There's like this like aspect of show show
0: upsmanship that, that they don't want to toe the line on, unless you're on a really bad team. Like the only reason why Kobe and Booker scored those that many points was because they were on trash teams and they were like, whatever, just do whatever you want.
1: Yeah, if they can't stop you, it's on them. <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. Um, so it's kind of interesting, even in this little aside that we have, we're essentially evaluating whether or not a hundred points is achievable based one on history, right, uh, the source information. two based on our own subjective ideas of whether someone can and can't do it with evidence, I might add. And then mm-hmm.
1: uh, was there a third
0: aspect of our evaluating uh, if somebody could score 100?
1: So, so it's the outcome of whether we believe or don't believe that they could. And I think you don't believe, and I do believe that it could happen.
0: Yeah, I, I think I don't believe. I mean, I'm, I, I, you probably get so frustrated with me sometimes because I just don't have any hard lines about anything. <laughs> <laughs>
1: No, it just means that you uh, you recognize the context sensitivity of assessment. <laughs> Sorry, a little dissertation thing that we can throw to the side. I'm going to um, just totally say that from I, now on. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, uh, just I don't think we're going to settle the debate about whether values are objective or subjective. I, I want to just throw out there that maybe this will show up in a later episode. I think that they can be objectively determined in a particular context. So when we know the explicit criteria, we have uh, the full knowledge of the source material, we can make a proper comparison and get an objective determination of the outcome. The problem is is that sometimes we don't have that transparency. Either our criteria isn't clear uh, or the source material has hidden factors or complex factors that override each other, right? And so there is some subjectivity in how we prioritize the criteria or how we interpret the criteria. But so I want to say, Evaluations, specific evaluations in context are objectively determined, whether or not our judgment matches the determination is subjective. So it's a little bit of both.
0: So um, what you're just describing, uh, tell me how far off base I am, but it sounds like that quest is essentially the nature of scientific inquiry.
1: Right. There's a goal to find out what is objectively real, but there's the subjective elements of investigation that uh, they don't prohibit the ability to to learn what's real, but they certainly flavor what kind of judgments we make, what kind of tests we run, uh, in what ways do we model or explain the world. There is some taste and preference um, brought into to those judgments. So the judgment itself might be an objective determination, but in a subjectively determined register, it's, it's never going to be the whole truth.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with that. I just kept thinking about how, um, <clears throat> um, you know, a particular viewpoint will skew whether you use a specific tool for an investigation or what method you use in the analysis um, and good scientists—I'll uh, use that very thinly—but in that I mean scientists uh, with rigor who are who understand their quest for objectivity also remains extremely subjective. Will allow evaluations both to their methods and their procedures, and tr- one try alternative methods. But if it's without, if it's outside their means to do so, they will invite others to try alternative methods. And this is essentially the the, the whole goal of scientific inquiry, inquiry, right? It's like, if multiple people trying different tactics come to the same result, we're getting closer to understanding what is or is not happening. Uh, but bad scientists do exist, right? And so they're, <laughs> they're the ones who will essentially undercut the methods, push their own agenda. And um, usually in the long run, it turns out to be found fraudulent. And so... Uh, the system, you could say, works still sort of objectively, but also there is all this like subjective subtext to all of that.
1: Yeah. So let's get scientific about the the goat. All right. So greatest of all time. I think greatest is pretty obviously a thin term. <laughs> greatest at what? Greatest in what way? Um, but of all time seems like an interesting add on that should determine something about our criteria that I think is still up to debate. When we think of greatest of all time, are we assessing the player in their time, like relative to their the players that they played against, or are we hypothetically pitting them against each other in their fullest realization? Or are we pitting them against each other in a potential fullest realization if they were all to play in some theoretical level playing field, which one would be the greatest? right? So of all time, I think, actually gives us three or four different kinds of criteria. And we could just disagree about how to, how to apply that criteria.
0: Yeah. Um, The other interesting thing about the language, right. Is that it allows you to bring in concepts that might have been outside the bounds of objective inquiry. Right. Uh, So for instance, like in that debate of MJ versus LeBron, the thing that always tips people's minds in the, way of MJ, Michael Jordan, is his level of competitiveness. And right now, we don't have a way to measure competitiveness. So it's essentially a thin term, despite the fact that it sounds really rich and thick, right? Like you could say like, oh, competitiveness, that is an important aspect to consider, but we have no way to actually evaluate it. And so, like, people just say, like, you know, there's all these stories of, MJ, of Michael Jordan, you know, either uh, doing very extreme things on the court or uh, in practices or at the expense of his teammates or at the expense of his opponents. And there's not so many of these kinds of stories with relation to LeBron James. So are we actually measuring competitiveness or are we measuring the anecdotal evidence of competitiveness?
1: I think we should make a new standard called the MJ standard, where Michael Jordan's competitiveness is 100, and how many MJs you have is the percentage of his level of competitiveness. <laughs> so maybe find a player that has 70 MJs, a pretty competitive player, you know, maybe All-Star level competition. Uh, and, and Michael Jordan, on his own scale, of course, would be 101. <laughs> <laughs> I was, <laughs> I was just gonna say <laughs> He's gotta beat his own scale.
0: What happens in that case where um evaluators shift the measurement system over time? Like you like you kind of just established, right? Michael Jordan at the beginning was a hundred, but then at the end he was a hundred and one.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well that's kind of like the the meter stick that was stuck in a box in in France so that it would always be a meter and then of course it did actually shrink I think. Uh and so the question was is a meter what it was when it when we first started or is it what it is now in that box?
0: Right. And then the then the standard changed to be some distance that light traveled within a fraction of a second which essentially if you think about it it's kind of roundabout because they just like set the time length to be exactly how far Uh, light travels in a meter Uh, right but then at the same time the theory is that it's a more repeatable measurement and that somebody else in another part of the world or universe could essentially measure that but then since we learned about relativity gravitational fields will influence how fast and far light will travel so is it really a repeatable measurement (laughs) (laughs)
1: right no it's it's really interesting how you since you can evaluate not only the the object of evaluation but also the outcome and your criteria we can kind of go back and forth on these debates until we agree on all three parts which is what makes it so much fun uh do championships matter like does does the raw number of championships matter for the greatest player or is it uh how many times did they lead their, their team to the finals or is it how many raw stats counting sets did they put up or is it advanced analytics um is it style of play is it inventiveness in the way that they change the game like what are the criteria that are in play for the great for the goat it's interesting um, that think- all
0: these these criteria that you mentioned right they do kind of translate over to that similar discussion that we have every year of the mvp right? But when you push on it, the media never they're the ones who vote. They never articulate what it is that their criteria is, right? The NBA doesn't have an official criteria list and they just leave it up to members of the media to vote on it Uh, and they've tried to make that process more transparent by uh, releasing who voted for whom in which amount like what first place, second, third votes they got, right? But and every once in a while, some of those media members will actually write an article detailing why they picked so-and-so over another person. But even still, those evaluation standards are very different from one person to another, which I don't know if that makes the voting process more or less interesting.
1: Yeah, I think it gets us to our next topic for, for our next episode. Maybe, maybe it's subjective taste, maybe personal preference is what's important in that kind of a judgment, in which case, can there ever really be an objective determination?
0: Is that a good or a bad thing?